So we've been uh, stepping through Exodus for about seven weeks now. I was looking at it, and um, we're in the in in step through how uh, God has a process of rescuing His people um, from the Egyptians, and we talked about that in the last few weeks. And then how He's going to kind of rescue um, them from themselves in, in the next few weeks, because now that they are free from Egypt, and we talk about slaves to priests, and they're in this process of doing that, um, how. Is God going to rescue them from themselves? And, um, and that's what we're going to talk about a little bit. But uh, before we do that, in, in chapter 14, the Lord rescued his people from the Egyptians. And the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea in this miracle of miracles that happened in, on the dry land. And there are these towers of water that the Lord pushed the, the water back. And then there's just dry land, right? And they walked across here. So in Exodus 14, the angel of God who was going before them, the host of Israel moved, and he went behind them, and a pillar of cloud moved before them and stood behind them. So this crazy pillar of cloud that God was in um, was behind them, or before them, and then it came behind them, and then uh, went around, and there's a cloud and darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So the Egyptian army was chasing them on, on this side, and um, the cloud of God, the pillar of cloud goes behind and, and covers them and, and blocks them from the Egyptians, right? And so this is what happens. And then all night, he, the Lord like blows the wind and it, and it makes these columns of water on either side. Um, and Moses stretched his hand and the Lord drove the sea back and strong wind all night and made the sea in the dry land and the waters were divided. So I say that because this is what they're coming from, right? There's this massive miracle that we look back to all the time and say, well, this is incredible. And if you've seen like any of the movies, you know, um, you'll see this massive miracle that happened. And sometimes we take that for granted, right? But God, this is an incredible thing for the Israelites. And, uh, and, and so they got to the other side. And not only did he do that, he destroyed the enemies, right? He destroyed all the... Um, Egyptians. And so the Egyptians pursued and all of Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and horsemen. And then Moses stretched his hand out again. The seas returned back to normal. And um, none of the Egyptians remained and Israel was saved. Um, so this is what the Lord just did for Israel, right? And, and I want you to start thinking about this as we go through this because a lot of times we're hard on the Israelites and what, what they're doing. Um, here and complaining and stuff. We're going about to get to the place where they complain over and over and over again. But just think about that for yourself. What has the Lord done for you? What has miracles have He done in your life? And how has He saved you? And then put yourself in that position right. So the people of Israel were saved. And in verse 30, 14, it says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord had used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. So they're at this good place, right? They're at like a spiritual high. This happens to us all the time around our lives, right? We get to a spiritual high. The Lord's done something in life. He's done a miracle for us or he's just worked through our life in amazing ways. And we're in this high and we believe in the Lord at that point, right? We've seen what he did and we, we, we believe. We believe right there, right? And, and they did too. They believed in the Lord and Moses. And then Rob talked about last week, this beautiful song. So when the Lord does something for you and does a, mer- a miracle in your life or does something incredible like save you, um, Moses went to song, right? And so Rob taught last week from the beautiful song, the song of Moses last week. And he encouraged us to kind of write our own song, right? Because it's good for us 
to remember what the Lord has done and then to remember it going forward because we're going to see why that's important. So as Rob suggested, I, I wrote a song, the song of Andy. So Aaron, why don't you uh, go ahead and, uh, since we're doing songs this morning, and then I asked my wife to do an interpretive dance, but she said no, she was not going to do that. <laughs> so uh, anyways, but I, I, I joke, but yeah, that's not going to happen this morning. Um, some of you are probably secretly hoping it did. Um, but he writes this beautiful song. And, and because the Lord in our lives has done amazing things, right? He's loved us. He's saved us. He's protected us. He's healed us. He's watched over us. He's redeemed us. And we could probably go on and on about different things the Lord has done in our life. We could probably sit down one-on-one and write down just massive things God has done for us, right? So question, what has the Lord done for you? And Rob kind of had us think about this last week. So we're not going to... Get, get together in our groups and talk about that right now. But just think about that right now. What has the Lord done for you? I mean, isn't he so good to us, right? I mean, think about the fact we're in this room this morning. We're with the body of Christ. We got to sing beautiful songs to God just a moment ago and, and praise him. He's so good to us. So it's good to remember it's good to put that the song like um, we so many people have done, and it's good to sing those songs back to God and glorify Him. So uh, Moses in fifteen one and two, he said, "I will sing to the Lord for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider has thrown into the sea, and the Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will extol Him." And he said in uh, 1511, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And in 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people who have you redeemed. You have guided them in the strength of your holy abode. And he finishes kind of a flourish in 18. The Lord will reign forever and ever. So whenever, whenever you need to be reminded, go back to the song of Moses, right? And be reminded of what the Lord did for the Israelites, what he did for Moses, what he did for us. And remember those truths. So this morning we're going to be in, briefly in chapter 15 towards the end. So if you want to turn your Bibles to 15, verses 22 through 27. We're going to start with the bitter water made sweet. Touch on that a little bit. That was kind of the first test um, of the Israelites as they got freed from uh, the Egyptian slavery. And then in chapter 16, we'll be in the bread from heaven. And then uh, a little bit in 17, verses um, 1 through 7. And there's a ton of really, really good stuff to cover this morning. Um, and like anything with scripture, there's a depth that we're not going to be able to touch on completely this morning. We're going to touch on a few things that I think we can apply to our lives. But just remember, there's so much here. So like I said before, Israel was on the spiritual and physical high. They had just been freed from their enemies. Think about how many years they were in Egypt and they were freed from that um, slavery and now they were free. But now they're in the desert and they're heading and they're like, well, what are we going to do? And so they, they, they're in the desert and usually in our lives this happens, right? 
we have these highs, right? And then lows come. We don't always stay on the mountaintop. There's valleys that come in our life. And that's what happens here too. Um, they just had this incredible miracle happen. And then what happens is there's a valley that comes. There's a test. And a lot of people call this like Wilderness University. And this was like the first class, the first test of Wilderness University. The people of Israel has to go through it. But we have to go through that too, right? I mean, everything we do in our life is a test from God to make us and redeem us and make them more like a son, right? And so we can think of it the same way that the Israelites thought of it here. And maybe we can learn from them and learn what to do and what not to do, right? And maybe learn from Moses here too. So God trains and disciples us. He sanctifies us in this university. Um, Spurgeon called the wilderness Oxford and Cambridge for God's students. Riken says that going through the wilderness was not necessary for Israel's salvation, but it was necessary for their sanctification. I want you to think about that. A lot of times we like to rest in the salvation that God gives us, right? We, we rest in the fact that we've been saved. And Israel was just saved from their enemies here. But now there's a process called sanctification that we have in our life that God uses tests and trials and hard things and good things in our life to teach us, right? He doesn't always teach us in the valleys. He teaches in the mountaintops too, right? But we're going through this right here and the same thing with Israel. And they come to the bitter waters in Exodus 15, through 27. So in 22, then Moses made Israel set out to the Red Sea and they went to the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Moriah, they could not drink of the water of Moriah because it was bitter before it was named Moriah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw into the water and the water became sweet. There the Lord made them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord, your God, do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all the statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for I'm the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam um, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they encamped there by the water. So it's a pretty simple little story. They come to water the three days in the wilderness and, and start thinking about these numbers in here too because there's a lot of symbolism in, in, in here. They go to three days. Does God use three a lot? You know, Jesus was in the grave for three days. There's so many threes in the Bible. And then even towards the end, you see there's 12 springs of water. I mean, whether 12 tribes in Israel, there's 12 disciples. You know, God's using these things because he, he cares about symbolism. He cares about a story. He cares about people connecting things, right? And so just think about these things as you go through. And then there's 70 palm trees, which 70 was used multiple times in the Bible. The 70 years they're in Babylonian captivity. Um, he sent out 70 or 72, depending on um, how you go back. Uh, Christ sent out um, his disciples in 70 or 72. Um, there's different um, manuscripts that say 70 or 72. So these, these uh, numbers come around a lot. But as you see here, they come. There's an issue. They can't drink the water. They're in the desert. 
I mean, how many, how many people know that when you're on a hike, how many people in hiking, just up in the mountains and stuff, or anyway, right? Or running, or anything, right? How many know that just after a few minutes, like, you need some water, right? You feel like you're going to die. Or if you're in the mountains, you're like, maybe you didn't bring enough water, and you went on an hour hike or whatever, and you're like, I don't have enough, right? They went three days in the desert, and now it's not like they have a grocery store where they can go buy a bottle of water or whatever. There's no option for them right out there, right? They're in the desert. The Lord has led them out there. Moses had led them out there. This thing keeps moving down. <laughs> Aaron? <laughs> um, so they're out there. There's no water. You know how dire it is when you're three days in the desert? So put yourself in their, their position, right? We complain out of the smallest little things, right? Some little thing doesn't work out for us, and we complain. And here is a bunch of people, 600,000 men and children and women, probably over a million people are out there in the desert. And Moses is leading them, and here, here's this bitter water. They come to this, and they're like, we don't have water. This doesn't work. We're going to die here, right? So that's their reaction. And they cry out, what shall we drink? Um, what do you think their first reaction should have been when they got to that point? Turn to God for help, right? Is that our first reaction? Can we re- relate to them a little bit? Like, is our first reaction to turn to God for help? I mean, we have to learn that, right? That's, a, that's the thing we have to learn. Um, that's not our first reaction. It wasn't theirs, right? But what was Moses' first reaction? What was the man who we talked about who was 40 years in Egypt as a prince of Egypt and then 40 years in the desert as a shepherd and God had taught him leadership and what happens here? Moses, then he gets the complaining to come to him and then he goes to the Lord, right? And he cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it in the water and it became sweet. Miracle, there's wood that he picks up and throws in the, in the water and it becomes sweet. Um, so their first test, they come, they find bitter water, they complain, and, and then they complain to Moses and he goes to the Lord, which is what should have been done from the very beginning. And then right in the middle of this, there's like a, a mini covenant, right? The Lord says here. It's kind of funny. It's like in between this whole thing, but the Lord is starting to build his covenant here with the people. And if you look at that, he says pretty much, if you follow me, you follow my rules, and you obey me, and you follow my commandments, what happens? What happens? What does the Lord say happens? That's right, right. He says, he says, I am the Lord, your healer. I will heal you. You just have to walk with me and obey me, and I will heal you. So he, makes, he starts this mini covenant with him right here. It's just kind of interesting there. He says, none of the diseases that you got in Egypt, or they got in Egypt, the boils, all that kind of stuff, I will protect you from that. And he says, I'm the, I'm the Lord, your healer, which is Jehovah Rapha. Um, and he's starting to show who he is, right? And that's the thing about God. And when we walk through this whole thing, we, we talked about one of the reasons why we walk through Exodus is to find out who the Lord is. Find out who the Lord is. And here he is. I'm a covenant God. I'm going to make a covenant with you. You, you, you come and come with me and you worship me and you follow my statutes and my rules and I will protect you and I'll be your healer. So there's this, uh, this covenant that he starts here. So the Israelites, they show their immaturity and they show that they don't really know the Lord because for goodness sakes, they just walk through this pillars of water on a dry land through the Red Sea. That just happened, right? 
And three days later, they're questioning God. So think about that in your own life. Like, what has God done for you? And then in the next moment, we do the same thing. We question God. Where are you, Lord? You know, where, where are you? Like, I, I know you're just there for me, but where are you now? Like, are you here in the, in the midst? And we'll see them question the Lord the next time in the next test too. So they're showing their immaturity. Let us not show our immaturity to the Lord, right? Let us not be immature disciples of Christ. Um, let us first start the cycle. Like, things are going to happen in our lives, and they're going to be hard. But we need to start the cycle first to come to the Lord first, right? And come to him and talk to him. So they complain and grumble. They, they do this thing, the cycle we're going to see over and over again. Grumble to Moses. Moses cries out to the Lord. The Lord tells him what to do. Moses obeys. The Lord saves the people. And the people are amazed. And then the people forget. You know, it's a cycle over and over again. They forget the power and love that the Lord has for them. So I guess this is kind of the, the, the pivotal thing this morning that we need to learn is the question here. Is your first reaction to troubled, faith-filled prayer or to grumbling and anxiety? That's probably the key thing this morning as we, as we look at the Israelites. Is your first reaction to trouble, faith-filled prayer or grumbling and anxiety? I have to tell you, I admit this morning that most of the time, my reaction is to head towards grumbling, complaining, and to have anxiety about the situations. Um, and that's not what the Lord wants for us, right? Be like Moses in this situation, not like the Israelites, right? Be mature in your faith. Um, come with faith-filled prayer. Some have called anxiety functional atheism. When I, I was reading that, I was like, that's so true, right? If we have anxiety and we complain, we're almost saying like God's not there, right? We've seen him work over and over in our lives. But at that point, we don't believe he's going to come through again, right? We don't really have that belief in him um, that he's going to come for, you know? We worry and we don't believe in God. And I think that's kind of the key this morning is to understand that we have to do it differently. If, if we are Christ followers, if we are people of the word and we believe in his word, and then we've also seen him work in our lives. If, if we are that, then what we need to be is people that come to him because this is a relationship, right? And he wants us to come to him. So then we're going to um, come to the next chapter in 16, we just finished up with the back part of 15. And there's test number two. And we're going to see multiple tests that come here. But test number two is the bread from heaven. And that's Exodus 16, 1 through 36. And we're not going to read the whole thing this morning. It's a long chapter. But uh, there's a lot of uh, key things here that are very important. And so here we go. Test one, they failed. Moses had to bail them out. God had to bail them out. And then God starts, starts his covenant, right? And test two, um, they're coming, and they're coming through. And let's read one through eight. Exodus 16, one through eight. They set out to Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, 
on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Again, grumble. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died in the land of the Lord by the hand of the Lord in the, hand, in the land of Egypt. And we sat by the meat pots and ate bread too full. For you have brought us out of the wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly with hunger. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. For all the people should go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I must test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, then they prepared what they bring in. It will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening, you shall know that it is the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard the grumblings against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, Then the Lord gives you the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to be full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, and the grumbling against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So they come here and they don't have bread now. They, they just saw that God turned bitter water into sweet water just right before this. And now they don't have bread and they're hungry and they're doing the same thing, right? They're complaining. And I guess what I want to get across this morning, and it's something I don't really think I've, in my own life, have really taken seriously, but complaining is a serious sin, right? It's a sin that really shows that we don't know God and we don't love God and we don't trust God, right? We don't trust in him when we complain. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 6, it says, For I do not want to be unaware, brothers, that your fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. It's talking about this, this part right here. They're all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they ate the same spiritual food, and they drank all the same spiritual drink, and they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. And the third test is going to be a rock where water comes out. So just remember that as we come back to that. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example that we might not desire evil as they did. So Paul's talking about this as he's talking to the Corinthians and he's reminding them about what happened in the Exodus. And he's reminding them about this very period of time. He says, now these things took place for an example for us. We look at this story as an example that we might not desire evil as they did. So Paul calls the complaining evil. In Philippians 2.14, I think most people know this verse, do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as light in the world. So what is Paul saying in Philippians? Philippians 2.4, he's saying, you church, you disciples of Christ, you do things differently. You do things without grumbling, complaining, and disputing, that you're blameless, that you're different, that you're set apart, right? You're lights in this world. And when I read a verse like that, I am so convicted. I'm looking at Marcus right now. 
You make sure when I'm complaining to you, <laughs> you remind me of this, this verse right here. Um, I'm so convicted, right? That in our lives, we see the goodness of God over and over and over again. And the next moment, we turn around and forget. We forget about it. And we complain. And, and what Paul's saying is, you're different. You're better than that. You're my children. I've called you apart. You're to be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish. I mean, we're sitting in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation, right? We're sitting here. And we're supposed to be different. And we don't complain and argue. And we don't complain and grumble. Why? Why is the point of that? Among whom you shine as light in the world. How can we be light to the world if we look like the world? If we look like the Israelites here? Where we quickly forget God's goodness and mercy, right? We quickly forget what he's done in our lives. And then the next moment we turn and complain. Um, I'm so convicted by this. And, and, and it, it's, not, it's something you've got to walk with lot, the Lord a lot. Just like Moses did. And so his response is going back to God instead of complaining when he comes to an issue. So we fall in the same cycle like the Israelites did in the wilderness. Um, we start out trials and tribulations, highs and lows in our life um, with complaining. And instead of first going to God and praying to him and asking for deliverance and, and ha- asking for strength from him, um, we just complain and we complain to others, we complain to ourselves, we complain to our parents, we complain to our friends, we complain to our spouse, whatever. We complain to people all the time about what's going on in our life. And, and we, have a different, we, have a, we have the wrong attitude. We have a reaction of complaining instead of a reaction of going to God first, right? When things are problems and dealing with hardship. But we follow and worship a wonderful Lord, right? We follow a wonderful Lord that does something for us. And here's four aspects of God's provision. I'm going to walk through them pretty quickly here. So he provides manna, right? He says, you're going to wake up in the morning and there's going to be bread. There's going to be this manna. It's like uh, sweet wafers with honey that they would have and they could collect, but just collect a certain amount, right? And so the four aspects of God provision here, and the same thing he does in our life too, is the first aspect is that it's supernatural. So 16, 11 through 15, God sends bread every morning. And I don't know if you know this, but he sent it every morning for 40 years when they're in the wilderness. We think sometimes, oh, well, it stops sometimes. It didn't stop until Joshua and the people set foot in the wilderness. 40 years, every morning, God provided for them in the wilderness, this bread. So supernatural, that's incredible. That's a miracle in itself, right? So these people saw God give them a miracle every day. But is that not unlike us? Like, don't we always have food on our table every morning? Do we deserve that? Like, I mean, there's people in this world that don't have that. We talk about children all the, day, all the time. We're like, you need to eat that, right? This is what your parents did to you, and now you've got to do it to your, parents, your kids too. There's people in Africa that don't have, they're, they're, they're hungry, right? And so you tell your kids that, but we need to be reminded of that too. We have bread from God every morning. I mean, there's nobody in here that goes hungry. I hope not. If there is, somebody else needs to come around them and help them out and, and be that supernatural that, uh, thing that God gives. So it's supernatural. It happened for 40 years every day. Um, the psalmist said it rained meat on them like dust and wings birds like sand of the sea. This is the Psalms uh, 78. And um, also in the same verse, it said, um, he, call, he calls the bread, the bread of angels that God provided. So God provided the bread of angels to the people, even though they complained, even though they, um, he knew they needed 
that even though we complain, he knows we need things and he gives it to us anyways because that's the kind of God he is. That's what we're learning about. And it was sufficient, right? That's the other thing we need to learn. It was supernatural. There's not something they could just say, oh, this happened, right? This had to come from God. Every morning it happened. He said, I'm going to do it and it happened. It was sufficient. In 16 and 30, they had enough for every day. No more, no less, right? There's this whole thing that if you kept some for the next day because you didn't believe God, what happened to it? People remember? I didn't read it, but maybe you remember. What happened to it? Spoiled, right? Maggots infested, worms and stuff. So God was showing the people, teaching the people that I'm going to provide for you. And what I provide is sufficient. It's enough for you. And that, that's something we need to learn too. Is it's sufficient. And then he was teaching them about the Sabbath, right? He said, okay, I want you to rest. I don't want you to collect anything on the Sabbath. In fact, I'm not even going to send bread on the Sabbath. So what happens? You collected the day before, right? And you'll have enough portion. But what happens on Saturday morning? Because that was a Sabbath. What happens on Saturday morning? There's no bread there. Are there maggots in the manna? No. On that one day a week, there's no maggots. He provided that, that portion for them. So, supernatural, sufficient, and it's sacred. In 1631 through 36, God um, told Moses to save a jar of manna so that the future generations could see that God provided, right? God cares about us. He doesn't even care about, he cares about the people back then and to provide for them, but he cares for us now and he wants to show us that he cares for us and he has provision. Um, Joshua 5, 11 through 12. And the day after Passover, very interesting, because Passover, right, was at the very beginning of the year. And that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased that day, they ate of the produce of the land. And there were no longer any manna for the people of Israel. And they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So all the way in Joshua 5, like I just mentioned before, day of Passover, that very day, when God provided something different for them, right? The promised land, he provided a complete land where they could get food from, and the land was going to produce. Then the manna stops, right? So that's 40 years. So supernatural provision is sufficient. It's enough for us every day, enough for them. It was sacred. It was something that we need to remember, something that was important. In fact, they took this portion of manna and they put it in the Ark of the Covenant, right? And so in the Ark of the Covenant, there was the Ten Commandments. There was this portion of manna. And then there was, we'll, we'll, we'll learn a little bit later about uh, the staff that budded, right? So Aaron's staff was also there, right? So this is a reminder of the people. And then it was sanctifying. So Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you this 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Then he humbled you and let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We're going to talk about that, that verse. And in a second, we're going to talk about Christ and how Christ 40 days in the, in the wilderness mirrors this 40 days or 40 years in the wilderness that, that, that Israel had. But remember that phrase at the very end there. 
It says, that you may know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So God was concerned with their bellies. He was. He was concerned about the fact that they didn't have any food. Um, but he was trying to be a shepherding God, right? He was trying to shepherd their heart back to him. And this experience was intended to humble them because they're going to go into the wilderness. They're not going to have water. He was going to provide for them. They're not going to have food. He was going to provide for them. They're not going to have water again. He was going to provide for them. And he was just going to continue to provide for them. So he's trying to shepherd them and teach them that come back to me. I'm the one that has water. I'm the one that has bread. And Christ will say the same thing in a little bit here about being the bread and being the water and being the blood. So God is worthy to be trusted for bread and God is worthy to be listened to every day. Um, God, the God who is worthy to be trusted for bread is the God who is worth listening to every day. Um, and even Christ says this same thing in his uh, high priestly prayer. So in John 17, 17, Christ has this, well, you can go back and read the whole, whole chapter. It's a beautiful prayer that Christ has for the disciples and for the saints, for us. And in and, and there in 17, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So just what we talked about, this is sanctifying. And there's all this connection. We're talking about symbolism here, right? We're talking about bread. We're talking about the, the, the bread that he provided. And then Christ is the bread. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But the water, Christ being the one who gives us sustaining water. And so that's where we're going to get to now in test three. So 17, one through seven is the water coming out of the rock. So now he's provided for him. Now he's actually provide water from nothing, not just, you know, make it sweet where they can drink it. So in 17, one through seven, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commands of the Lord and they camped at Rephidim. But there's no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, here they go again, right? Give us water to drink. Remember that. They're demanding, right? And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But, but the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children, our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Isn't that crazy? You read that? Like, they're about to kill Moses after all that God had done. Oh my goodness, that's crazy. But that's us too, right? That's us over and over again. After all God has done, we keep complaining. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand a staff, which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you on that rock of Horeb, and strike a rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did in the sight of all the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarrel of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? That, that's crazy to me. I mean, they just saw all these miracles, and then they're, they're questioning, Is the Lord here? He just provided manna for us every morning. Is the Lord among us? So three failures real quick, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go to how this uh, shows what Christ did. Three failures, the demanded God to provide for them in 17.2a. They questioned God's provision and they doubted God's presence in the very end, right? Is the Lord not among us? 
So just with everything in scripture, you could probably teach a whole lesson just on that, that few little things there, but we've got to move on. I want to get to a very important thing, this kind of Christ, what he did in the wilderness when he fasted and it was tested, and then the Israelites were tested here. So we all know about Christ going into the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry and uh, fasting for 40 days, right? And how is the symbolism connected back? And what does Christ do here that shows that he's the better Moses, right? We keep talking about that Christ is the better Moses here. So Christ passed the test where Israel failed. So when he's in, in, a, in a wilderness in Matthew 4, 2, and 3, we see that Christ is the better, better Moses here. No one else could pass the test, but Christ did. And that's the important thing. Christ passed the test for us on our behalf. Matthew 4, 1 through 3. And Jesus was led to the Spirit and to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and, and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. There's that bread symbolism, right? And he answered. Now remember, we just read this. It is written, man should not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see what Christ did there? He went back in the Deuteronomy, that passage in Deuteronomy 8, and he said, man should not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's changing it from the bread physically to the bread spiritual, right? The bread that God has for us, that he's the bread of life. His words are bread. His words are life to us. The Bible is life to us, right? And he's, he's saying, you don't test the Lord. So the Lord passed the test right there. He didn't grumble and complain. He didn't. He was hungry. 40 days, right? Who's fasted for 40 days in this room? Probably nobody, right? I mean, who does that? If certain people do that. People have done it in Scripture. But who does that? Christ did that. He was showing that he was hungry. And he wanted the bread. And the tempter came to him and said, hey, turn these stones into bread. And, and, you, you'll, you'll have, and then Christ said, you know, didn't you know? That man should not love on bread alone, but every word that comes from God's mouth. So Christ passed the test. He was quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. And praise the Lord he passed the test because he was the one who was going to die for us just a little bit after that. And pass the test again too. And then Christ is the bread that we need for eternal life in John 6. Jesus had the better manna, right? There was manna that he gave to them every day for 40 years, but... Christ was the better manna. He had the better manna. In Christ 6, he fed the 5,000 at the beginning. And then everybody wanted to follow him, right? He fed 5,000 people. We won't go over that whole story, but he did that with bread and fish, right? But the people followed him and they wanted to know, like, you know, what should we do here? And he says in 27, do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man that is given to you. For on him, God the Father has sent his seal. And the people didn't understand what that meant. And so he said in 31, our father ate, our, they said, our fathers ate man in the wilderness, as is written, and you gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Christ replied to them in 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And that kind of reminds us, as we're talking about that with the woman of the well, where he was saying, I can give you spiritual water that you'll never thirst. So you see all the symbolism? You see that the rock was struck and water came out? Christ was that rock. I read that verse at the very beginning that talks about Christ. Uh, Paul was talking about it, that he was the rock that would bring forth water. So Christ was that symbolism. He was the rock that brought forth water. Christ 
was the one who brought forth bread. He physically brought forth bread for the 5,000, but then he also gave them the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So Christ will give us spiritual bread and spiritual water. And there's so much in this, these passages and stuff. And so I think this morning, I just want to key on the one thing and then just talk about going back and studying this stuff, right? Because we're seeing how it connects with Christ in the New Testament and all that. And uh, we just need to study the scriptures so that we can understand what God has for us. Um, but we need to stop. And so I'm going to pray for us and then we're going we're gonna to talk around our tables for a few minutes about what, um, what you've learned this morning. Father God, um, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this morning. I thank you that we can come and worship you. I thank you that we can remember what you've done for us. We can sing your praises back to you because you're a wonderful God. You're a God who has sent your son, who is the bread, who is the water, who is the blood, who covers all our sin, Father. And I pray, Father, that we'd be a people of light, Father, that we would shine in this generation because we're not people that complain. Let it be known that the people at First Baptist, the people at Young Professionals here at First Baptist are not people that complain, but are people that shine like lights in this crooked and depraved generation. I pray that you convict our hearts, Father, every time we don't follow you and we don't obey you because we complain with what um, our situation is. I pray that you convict us every time we do that, Father. And we'd be changed people and that we would um, we'd constantly come back to you for our sustenance, for our bread, for our water, for everything that we need for you. Because you've done it in the physical, you, you've done it in the spiritual, Father. You're, you've completed us, Father, because you are a loving God and you love us. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.